This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. The following was recorded at RAND's Politics Aside 2016 in November. Here's Malcolm Gladwell. So we'll stand and I'll introduce. This is Jeff Lunau. 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 I almost had it right. Um, and he is, as it says in your materials, he is the general manager of the Houston Astros. And I think it's safe to say one of the brightest young minds in baseball. Not that young anymore. Okay. <laughs> I noticed you disputed the young and not the brightest, which I like to see that kind of self-confidence. Here, let's see. Okay. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to talk about, there's so much in baseball that is a marvelous metaphor for so many other things. Mm-hmm. I thought it'd be really, really fun just to walk through uh, the way in which you make decisions in baseball. Um, and you, you're part of, it's fair to say, this movement in baseball about analytics, analytics. And I want you to start by saying, what does that word mean in the context of baseball? And does the way analytics is, is the way analytics is practiced in the Astros or the Cubs differ, or any other team, differ dramatically from other baseball teams. In other words, does everyone have their own interpretation of it? Are you using different methods than other people? What's the... It's a a great question, and part of it needs some historical context. When Michael Lewis wrote the book Moneyball, um, really what the Oakland A's were were doing was revolutionary, and they were using a very rudimentary form of analytics in baseball. Uh, That's about the time that, uh, that when that book was published that I came into the industry, And really what it meant was using history as a guide to predict what's going to happen in the future. Uh, There's a a lot in baseball about trying to predict the future. That's that's what we're paid to do. We're paid to pick whether Edwin Encarnacion or Ioannis Cespedes is going to be a better free agent uh, bargain. Neither of them are going to be bargains. They're both going to get $100 million plus, and the teams need to understand what they're going to do in the future. So um, one of the best predictors of future success is past success. Um, I think what's happened, though, is the traditional tug between a scout's opinion and what the analytics say um, has changed a lot because the analytics no longer are just predicting, (coughs) just telling you what happened in the past as a way to predict the future. The analytics are now telling you how to evaluate a player, how to evaluate all of their skills that lead to the results that you're looking for. So it's, uh, it's in every organization. When I was first hired in the organization in, in uh, St. Louis Cardinals organization in 2003. There were probably 10 teams that had a full-time analyst, uh, and I was hired to help figure out whether or not the Cardinals needed to invest in this area. And one of the first things I did within the first six months was hire an analyst. I remember a year later I was going to hire a second analyst, and I thought that second analyst was probably not needed beyond a six-month period to build the system. So we'd probably have to go back to one after that. Um, In 2014, we passed the threshold. 100 analysts were hired by the industry. And in 2016, just a couple months ago, we passed the 200 analyst threshold. Wow. So So an individual team would have how many analysts? Right now, the average is, is, you know, six per per club. Yeah. Um, Whereas, and, and, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I thought two was probably too many. So uh, the world has changed. There's a lot of information out there. And teams are, are catching up to one another. I would say there were probably um, 
even as recent as two years ago, there were 10 teams that were considered laggards. Um, all 10 have changed leadership and they're all furiously hiring analysts and trying to figure out how to, how to catch up and a lot of them are probably gonna leapfrog. So if, if you've gone, if the average team has gone from one or two to six analysts, is that because they are looking at more players or they're looking at more things about players? It's the same number of players. It has been for a long time. They're not, look, they're not casting their net in the minors wider than they did before. Well, there's more information available about players in the minors than there was 10 years ago. So yes, actually the, uh, the amount of information that we're trying to process has multiplied exponentially. Yeah. Uh, we now get every night in every major league stadium for every pitch thrown, hundreds of pieces of data for every pitch thrown, times 15 games, times uh, you know, 162 uh, dates, and that's just at the major league level. And now we've got these mechanisms to track the information at the minor league level. So uh, big data is, is uh, right in front of us in, is a, in it, a major Is that way. the newest? When you look at the bits of information that you gather, is the newest piece real-time game data? That's have to be relatively recent. Am it, I right? it, it's been uh, in the last two or three years that we're getting real-time data on things like the spin rate of a curveball or fastball, uh, but the, we're not allowed, the, our dugout's still not allowed to have technology. So if I'm sitting up in my box watching a game and I see something, um, I, there are ways I can communicate down to the dugout, but in general, the dugout is technology-free. There's no real-time communication with the dugout. Yeah. Um, Wait, so you notice that a, a pitcher, the motion on a pitcher's slider is degrading in the fifth inning. You, do, do you run downstairs and say to the manager? I'm not allowed to do, do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but sometimes if I... Uh, no, I we do have a lot of real-time information. I think the explosion has not only been um, in, in trying to understand what happened on the field, but also um, in the medical arena, psychology, uh, strength and conditioning, sleep research. There's so many different topics now that we study that we need to try and understand to give ourselves an edge. You know, the Boston Red Sox uh, last year started to spend the night on the road instead of fly back after a game because they studied sleep and felt like sleeping during the day uh, was not very productive, so let them stay mm -hmm. in Houston, sleep, and then fly the next day. Um, that sounds great in principle, but the minute you start to apply it, players don't really go home right after the game anyway, so that time when you were allocating for them to be sleeping, they were out eating and who knows what else they were doing, so they ended up being more tired the next day rather than less. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, but my point is that there's so many other areas beyond just understanding the statistics of what occurred mm -hmm. that are working themselves into our game, and that's, uh, we're not just hiring uh, statistical analysts or mathematical modelers. Uh, the guy that runs our analytic department in Houston uh, he's a physicist because we're really trying to understand what's happening with the swing, what's happening with the delivery, what happens with the ball, mm -hmm. all of those sorts of things. Give me an example of a decision that you've made recently that was powerfully informed by analytics and that in a, even a few years ago you would not have made. There was a um, Cuban free agent that was seeking a lot of investment to secure his rights, and uh, we scouted him, and our traditional scouting uh, results would have suggested that this player was uh, worth a lot of money to invest in, is gonna have a very bright future. 
Um, there are now ways to study a player's swing that we employ, and the feedback from that study suggested that there's some issues with the swing that would make us leery of giving a huge investment the way it was going to be required to sign the player. So we completely backed off. A year ago, we wouldn't have had the same information. We probably would have signed the player, and it would have been a, a major overhaul of the swing to get it to work uh, the way we need it to work. You, um, well, that was my next question was, so you, I, I'm assuming under certain circumstances that information says, I can help this player get better. And, but in this case, right. your, your information said it's going to be too much, it's a bridge it's, too far. It's too much of a risk. There are um, deliveries that are unconventional. There are swings that are unconventional um, that you can potentially rework. But I'd rather re rework them on a $1,000 senior sign out of a draft than a $10 million or $20 million signing. So it really is all about your risk appetite and percentage likelihood the player's going to make it to the big leagues. Because only 5% of the players we sign make it. Mm -hmm. And then those that make it, a very small percentage end up being average or above average players. So. Uh, you're really working with long odds from the yeah. very beginning. Where, so analytics can play a role, I'm assuming, over the entire lifespan of the player's continuum. And I'm, gonna, I'm guessing, and I would love to hear your thought on this, that the next frontier is to extend the use of analytics earlier and earlier and earlier. In other words, why wouldn't, if you're, trying to, if you're scouting eight-year-olds or trying to figure out which eight-year-olds might benefit the most from advanced training, this might be a useful... My question is... Where do, and at what point in that long chain does analytics have the greatest return on investment? It, it's earlier. Uh, and really the reason is for, for a decade now, we've been able to study what happens at the big league level and predict future performance based off of current performance. But a 16-year-old in the Dominican Republic or a 15-year-old in Venezuela, you don't have any performance history. And so now that we have ways to evaluate how we think they're going to develop and what their swing looks like, what their delivery looks like, what the rotation on their fastball is, how much spin is on their curveball. We can begin to develop profiles of 15-year-olds. And now that we've been doing these profiles for a few years, we've seen which ones have quicker success versus less quick success. And, and we're starting to really develop a, a predictive model that's going to be able to differentiate between the 100 kids that all look the part in a tryout in Venezuela. And you have to pick the ones that, that you're going to sign. And, let the other teams sign the other guys. Yeah. What, um, so it, it earlier is better, but I mean, but I want to dig in this. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely obvious to me why that's the case. So why would, why would that be true? And why wouldn't you say, well, if I could, like, I would say, if you could extend the career of an established player by an additional, give him one more good season, isn't that enormously valuable? Someone who is a sure thing in your system, familiar with everything, and you're simply altering the, 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 the shape of the, the, of the curve of his decline? No question. I mean, the, the aging curve is something we study a lot because it matters. Most of the money we're spending is on players over the age of 30, and, and a lot of them decline to the point where their contracts go underwater very, very quickly. Um, changing a player in their early 30s is difficult. Mm -hmm. um, we, we found last year we had a player very notable player who was struggling mightily at the plate, and we tried to make changes, and there was just no um, desire to make changes, and so nothing changed on the field. 
we released the player, he went to another organization. At that point, I think he was willing to accept that something needed to be done, made some of the same changes we had been recommending and had a lot more success. So part of it has to come from the player himself. You build up these habits over years, it's very difficult to change those habits. Yeah. Uh, but, but certainly, if, and that's why we focus so much on the nutrition, the sleep, the, the, the fitness. Our players are all, I mean, right now they're already working out for next year. Used to be in the past, you went home after the season, you got another job, you hung out with your family, and then you come to spring training to get ready for next year. Yeah. Any player that has that mentality now is not going to make the team. They yeah. have to be ready to go uh, on February, in February when they show up for spring training. Do you learn anything meaningful by looking at individual players, or is this all, like for example, David Ortiz. Mm -hmm. If we did an extensive deep dive analytically into David Ortiz, trying to answer the question of why was a player capable of producing, being so productive well into the twilight of his career, is that helpful, or is it really only helpful when you take large groups of players and sort of aggregate lots of data? That's a great question. I think there are um, hypotheses everybody has about why David Ortiz has been successful. What are they? Uh, he has a, um, first of all, it starts with his offensive output. He has an, an easy swing that's easy for him to replicate, and he's got an incredible eye, and he's been able to, over time, figure out which pitches to swing at and which ones to avoid. And that is something that you build with experience. It actually gets, that's one of the few components that, as you age, gets better and better and better, which is why you see a lot of these sluggers like Barry Bonds and David Ortiz able to lay off of very borderline pitches until their eyes actually start to go away. But mm -hmm. um, I think the next piece is taking a David Ortiz and a Barry Bonds and other players that have had success in their late 30s and trying to put them together as a group and figure out are there common characteristics. And we found some of those in, in pitchers, the way they throw the ball, the type of uh, repertoire changes they've been able to, uh, for example, most pitchers in their 20s can throw a fastball in the mid-90s, but by the time they get to the 30s, they can't do that. So how they've been able to adapt, use their secondary pitches, mm -hmm. how they've been able to learn how to locate their fastball and really learn how to pitch, um, those, are, those are the sort of themes that emerge once you start to study the individual players and then group them together. Is, is a player's intelligence a useful guide to their adaptability in later life? That's a gr another great question. I think there's um, baseball intelligence is different than... Uh, book smarts, and a lot of the players that I've had experience with from some of the best academic institutions that are clearly bright, got good SATs, did well in school, um, they haven't been the best students necessarily in the locker room because they, for whatever reason, I don't know the exact reason, maybe they overthink things, maybe they're constantly thinking about ten things at the plate instead of one or two, uh, but there is a certain uh, baseball IQ that is needed for players to make the changes that, that they need to make. We um, took a player off for waivers from Colorado, uh, w which means he was essentially available for free to any team that wanted him. And we changed his repertoire based on the analytics. And he, two years later, he ended up winning 19 games in the big leagues for us. And was our When you say his repertoire, you mean his pattern, pitching pattern? or Pitching pitch pattern and uh, tweaked a few of his pitches, but in general, he had the right pitches. He just wasn't using them the right way. Mm -hmm. And he had been taught to pitch a way that was not really helping his tool set. And he changed it and became very successful. And this year, he's going to, uh, for the first time in his life, he was a guy that was essentially released. He's going into arbitration this year, and he'll be making 
$4 million a year next year, and that's just the beginning of his so earning fixing years. him cost you $4 million. Well, but we got 19 <laughs> wins out of him <laughs> two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so you got Wait, what's the pitcher's name? Colin McHugh. Oh, okay. And he, um, you know, he went, to, uh, he went to college, Barry University in Georgia, um, but he went to college to pitch. And, but he's, a, he's a, one of the highest baseball IQ pitchers we have on our staff, um, even though he doesn't have the academic credentials or, you know, he, he really is a, a baseball IQ guy. And he's in the video room, always looking at the video, talking to our catchers, talking to our advanced guys, mm-hmm. uh, really trying to soak the information in. And he's capable of handling a lot of it and then executing it in, the, in competition. Yeah. There is a... Uh, uh, I was reading some article about forest rangers. Mm-hmm. And forest rangers have a category that they call GPS lost. Mm-hmm. And GPS, so there's normal lost, which is you wander off the trail, and there's GPS lost, where you're miles from where you should be. I mean, you're Mm -hmm. completely, Mm -hmm. because you become so dependent on your analytics that you lose your, so that's, so there's a category of error associated with analytics in hiking, which is you reduce the overall number of errors, but the errors you do make are catastrophic. So I'm curious about whether there's an analog for baseball here. What are the kinds of errors that you make because you are relying on analytics? Yeah, it's a good question. And if you rely on the analytics solely, you are going to make mistakes, and every organization has done it. Uh, my very, the very first draft I was involved with in 2003, there was a player from Miami of Ohio that was exceptional performance player. Uh, but the scouts didn't love him, and I couldn't really figure out why. Um, he, ended up not, he ended up being a bust, and that was the first foray into analytics for the Cardinals, and so they said, aha, see, that stuff doesn't work. Um, there was a player that... Uh, w- Why didn't the scouts like him? Do you know? Um, a lot of the traditional, uh, the hustle, the, uh, you know, the makeup, some of the sort of intangible things that scouts are, are paid to go find out what these players are really like. Um, we made a trade for a player when I was in St. Louis that the analytics absolutely loved, um, and then as soon as we got the player realized there were some off-the-field issues that were significant, and the player never lived up to his potential. So if you're not understanding the whole complexity, you're, you're securing the rights to a human being to play this game for you, and the human being element of it seeps into everything that he does and really trying to understand the character, the, the physical well-being, uh, the mental well-being of the players that you're acquiring, and, and mixing in with the other 24 players Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And, and that chemistry part on a team um, can, be, uh, can make or break whether a player has success. What would be the number one trait that analytics cannot at the moment measure or inform a decision maker about? I think the um, desire and ability to improve. The reality is every baseball player is deficient in some way, shape, or form. They're hanging on to their career. They're building it and trying to hang on. Um, and this, this idea of, of growth mindset, which we've read about, that I want to get better, I want to figure out if there's... It's a game of failure. Even if you're great, you're failing an awful lot. How do I make my failure less than the, the next guy? Um, and, and trying to identify which players are going to continue to improve and or even stay the same versus which ones are going to, as soon as they hit a roadblock, are going to kind of give up and say, well, that, that was it. What's an example of a player that you think has has an exceptional growth mindset? Uh, for me, Al, you know, Albert Pujols with the Cardinals, probably the best I've ever seen. He was already a um, he was rookie of the year. He was an MVP. 
And in spring training, um, he would come in at 7 in the morning. The rest of the major league team wouldn't show up until 8. He would take swings in the cage from 7 until 7.45. He would work with the young players. And when he came out of the cage at 7.45, he was sweating. And not only was he physically exhausted, but you could tell he was mentally exhausted. Whatever he was doing in there, he was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And then he would take a break and then work with the rest of the team. And he's, uh, he cont- you know, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is uh, it's, a co- it's that mindset that he has that even having already received a $100 million contract and been an MVP, um, he felt like every day he had to prove himself. And every day he had to figure out how to make himself better. Uh, another one? and Wait, Before you go on, yeah. I just want to point out something. So he said he would come in at 7 and everyone else would come in at 8. So the Hall of Fame player and the greatest player of his generation mm-hmm. comes in at 7. Mm-hmm. And why isn't everyone following his lead? They, and and <laughs> others would. And that yeah. created a culture in, yeah. in the Cardinals that led to a lot of success. Um, I think the other player that right now, I'm hoping he wins the MVP next week, um, Jose Altuve. He's five foot five inches tall. It says five six in our media guide, but he's five five. Right? <laughs> this guy came to his first tryout with the Astros, and we told him to go home that he wasn't good enough. He came back the next day and talked his way through the security guard and got another tryout, and we signed him to a fifteen thousand dollar contract. Mm-hmm. Um, he's made it not only made it to the big leagues against all odds, but continues to improve every single year. And he is so driven to be the best that every year he figures out what part of my game do I need to improve. And really, for the last few years, he won the stolen base title. He won three silver sluggers. He's, you know, he won a gold glove. Um, and this last year, we talked to him. We've been talking to him for a couple of years about getting on base more and maybe uh, seeing better pitches. This year, he broke his uh, you know, career high in walks by end of June. He still had three months to go. Mm-hmm. And he shattered his old home run record. And so no, I don't even know what to tell him this offseason. Because <laughs> he's pretty so much... If, you, if I take his statistics and everything you knew about him from an analytical standpoint, and we go back to his very earliest you know, moment in the minors, sure. what are the analy- just the analytics tell us about his potential? I think he was a guy that made a lot of contact but didn't have any power and didn't really manage the strike zone, and so those guys um, do okay. They get to the big leagues. I think we would have predicted that he would have gotten to the big leagues and had a up-and-down career, mm-hmm. um, but he's, he's shattered the model. And even, even when he was in his first couple years with the Astros, our projections for him were light. He's, he's exceeded our projections for him every single year that we've been there. Yeah. How does... Um, I'm going to end on a... I have two last questions. The last one is my... Uh, fun, frivolous question. But before we get to the fun, frivolous, how does the um, usefulness of analytics uh, compare across domains? So is analytics more or less useful in baseball than basketball or football or soccer? Do you have a sense of the... I do. Um, Daryl Morey runs the MIT Sloan Analytics Conference and he works right up the street from us, and he's done a tremendous job of building the Rockets using a, a strong analytics base, and so many of his lieutenants have gone out into the league and done the same thing. Um, the whole three-point shot versus close-in, that's all a, a analytics actually impacting the game in a significant way. Uh, football, same thing with a punt versus go-for-it decision. There's been a lot. I've met a lot of football uh, general managers, 
Um, soccer's done a tremendous amount of stuff. There's a lot of information now it's when we watch soccer games about how far they ran during the game and mm -hmm. the pass efficiency and all that stuff. So it's, it's something that we just hired a guy from the soccer industry to come help us. Um, there's some trans uh, people going from, from sport to sport now. And you hired him from soccer because you thought you could help you with what? Uh, the medical part of it. The, the soccer industry has done a lot more studying of, uh, on fatigue and, and injury prevention, and they use wearables to understand stress rate and all this other stuff that we're just starting to do in baseball. So he's given us a huge head start in that area. Um, and we've sent uh, Paul DePodesta, who was the guy written about in Moneyball, he now works for the Cleveland Browns. And mm -hmm. so there's going to be, I think, more cross-pollinization. It used to be an executive in baseball or an analyst in baseball, no way they could work in football because it's just two distinct sports. But I think we're going to see more of that in the future because a lot of these are common things that we're talking about. Yeah. So what if we go entirely outside the domain of sports and go into, say, the business world or organizational world? So here at RAND, there's a whole process. I don't think I'm giving anything away. There's a whole process where senior leadership, like Michael, sits down and talks and thinks along about who should replace them? What the kind of stream of people? So you have a can't group of people who are under consideration. What would what does analytics? What could analytics teach us about how to make that decision? Is, are there ways of looking at people's performance in the business world that um, baseball analytics could inform? I think you talk about what are the characteristics of success. So almost the old scout tool-based analysis. Uh, what are the five or six skills that are needed to be successful in that role. And then, you know, the, the analytic component is what's the track record been? Has this person demonstrated a track record of success? And if those two things match up together, that's when you get mm -hmm. the George Springers, the Alex Bregmans, the players that when, when the analytics match up with, with the traditional tool evaluation, you get the real superstars, the Mike Trouts of the game. And I think it probably applies to a lot of things that we do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the... There isn't a kind of baseball diamond for people running for public office, but <laughs> <laughs> if, if there was, it might be useful. Um, <laughs> well, well th thank you uh, so much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.